Please open in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. And if you would, please stand together. We're going to give our attention to God's Word this evening. It'll be read and preached from Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the living God endures forever. So the people of God hear and heed God's word together. Here and now it is. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As far the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you now, not only with faith, but even with hope. For we do not see your Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, But we wait with confident expectation that the Spirit will bless the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God even now. Help us more and more to see the hope of our calling in Jesus Christ and to long even groan for that heavenly treasure that is ours in Him. For we pray in His exalted name. Amen. Please be seated. Romans 8 is arguably one of the most comforting chapters in the entire Bible. And it's a comfort that comes to the people of God, not by playing down the reality of our trials in this world, but rather by setting them against the backdrop of those things that are even greater, which is to say the gospel and our communion with God himself. But as the text exposes, there is something rather difficult for us, particularly as it regards the manner of waiting, being patient. Those are probably not some of your favorite words. Wait, be patient. And yet, they are words found here in our text. But I think if we were honest, we would admit that we all struggle with those things. Uh, One person said, beat me, insult me, even take my money, do anything but waste my time. We struggle with being patient. But our text shows us this evening that God not only is not wasting our time, even our trials that we endure in this present evil age are not in vain. And so let's work together through the text. We're going to begin by first reflecting on the subject of suffering now and future glory, which is really just looking closely at verse 18 itself. The first thing that Paul does for the church here in this section is offer us a measure of comfort, but in that by way of comparison. He shows a contrast, if you will, between the sufferings that we endure now and the glory that is yet to be revealed in us, glory that awaits us in heaven. One commentator makes a helpful point that what Paul does here 
is not show how comparable our sufferings now are with the glory that is going to be revealed in us, but actually how incomparable they are. The point is the two aren't even worth comparing to one another. There is no pound-for-pound comparison to be made as though if you simply put uh, all the sufferings and trials that we endure as the people of God on one side of the scale, Paul's point is not that there is an equal side of glory and good things on the other side, and somehow that's supposed to offer us consolation. There's no pound-for-pound comparison, not just in quantity, but also in quality. But when Paul uses, uses the word suffering, uh, what were those sufferings that the church was enduring? In a manner of speaking, we might actually find it helpful in reflecting on the sufferings that the church then was enduring that we might find a point of contact with our own. The people in Rome were normal people. They were real, normal people like you and me. People in Rome had jobs and families. They had sickness and social issues. But Paul writes to a church in Rome of normal people who have become Christians. And because they'd become Christians, on top of the normal trials that all people experience and endure in this life, they were being persecuted for their Christianity. They were being persecuted because they were Christians. Caesar believed himself to be something of a god or godlike. If you had a Roman coin uh, in the time that this church was in existence, on one side of the coin, Caesar would be referred to uh, as a son of God or as Lord over Rome. Christians claimed, however, and taught that Jesus was the son of God. Again, Caesar claimed to be Lord, and Christians claimed that Jesus was king of kings and Lord of lords. It'd be hard to overstate how offensive the Christian doctrine would be to Rome, not just Roman citizens, but to Roman authorities and even to Caesar himself. As you know, the Romans were known for their polytheism. They believed in many gods, and Christians were actually the first in history to be nicknamed atheists because they believed in only one god. They were, in many ways, the Romans uh, were much like the Egyptians. They had many gods, and they believed that their man on top was something of a divine-like being, even himself. And so Christians were perceived as a threat and as offense, and they were suffering for it. I may have mentioned at another time that in the first century, an earthquake happened in Rome. It was a serious enough earthquake that it did great damage, and the Romans actually blamed the Christians And the thought was that the Christians had insulted the gods, small g, with an S at the end, by saying that there was only one God. And so the gods brought an earthquake upon Rome as an act of judgment. And during that time, persecution of Christians actually intensified. So this is what the people in Rome we're dealing with, and in particular, what the church in Rome is dealing with. When Paul describes sufferings, he's not simply describing the normal things that you and I endure and all people endure. He's adding a layer over that of the persecutions that the church was dealing with in addition. And it was hard. And it raises hard questions. Hard times often do, don't they? Hard times tend to raise hard questions. Questions like this. If God is good, 
why am I suffering this way? If we are on his side, why does it so why does it seem so many people are on the other side? Lord, why? Why now? Why me? Romans 8 is written in response to questions like these, questions that a normal church would ask, not just in Rome, but anywhere. And I want you to notice, I think this is pretty important, uh, what Paul, in a certain sense, does not do. What he does not do is diminish the reality of the church's trials. He doesn't blow them off. He doesn't say uh, trite little things. He doesn't offer any cliche little platitudes. He doesn't uh, drop 180 song with a familiar line, don't worry, be happy. Or a great line from one of my favorite reggae artists, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. I know you'll have that song in your head for the rest of the evening, but worse things could happen to you. But Paul doesn't respond that way. He doesn't offer trite little platitudes. He doesn't offer a cliche familiar lines. He doesn't blow off the suffering that the churches endure. He doesn't uh, kind of talk down to them and say, quit your whining. It's not that bad. Or look around. Others have it worse. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't diminish or play down the reality of what the people of God were enduring. And neither will I. In fact, neither should you. It's not helpful to describe things as though they're actually not that bad, when perhaps maybe they actually are. Christians in the first century were dying. And not just from old age or sickness, they were dying under the hand of persecution. Romans uh, made sport out of Christians, and you know what they did with Christians at the Colosseum? They fed them to the lion over and over and over, young and old. Paul himself would later die in prison, here in Rome. And so Paul's point is that in this present evil age, or to use his precise language in verse 19, at the, excuse me, verse 18, at this present time, Christians suffer. So as we go through the stuff that we go through, beloved, it's actually more helpful to call it what it is, real and genuine trials, tribulations, suffering, than it is to sort of uh, play those things down and pretend that they're not actual realities. But in contrast to that reality, Paul says, the reality of that present time uh, is the incomparable glory that awaits us. And so if we've talked about suffering, let's talk a little bit about glory. When Paul drops that word, glory, what does he mean? Well, it's a a beautiful word, and I can't pretend to do justice to it. And there's a side of me that thinks the more I study it, the less I really know what it actually is. The glory of God. Define that for me in a sentence. The glory that awaits. Unpack that in a paragraph or two. In verse 17, up above, he makes very clear that the glory in reference is something bound, not simply to us, but to our union with Christ. It's very similar to what he says in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Glory is not only bound to our union with Christ. Glory is the opposite of sin and shame. If sin is doing what God condemns and shame is enduring God's just response, glory would be the exact opposite, receiving that which God bestows upon those whom he declares righteous. Eternal beauty eternal peace, eternal light. 
Glory is what Jesus asked for just before the end of his life in John 17, when he says, Father, return to me, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was. Glory is what Jesus not only asked for before his death, glory is what Jesus received in his resurrection when his catechism says he was taken up in glory. And glory is that with which Christ will return. And when you think about it, what a splendid difference. In many ways, this is a very important point. When Christ returns in glory, he will not come back as a lamb to be slaughtered. He will not come back as one who is burdened with the weight and reality of our sin upon him. But rather, when Christ returns in glory, he will be radiant with that eternal glory of heaven itself, free from sin, free from the shame and burden of our sin upon him. And so in many ways, what Paul is doing here, unpacking in Romans 8, this glorious inheritance that is ours with Christ in glory, might be described this way. What Jesus has received from the Father, that is the glory of heaven, and his own glorious inheritance, he will share with us as part of his eternal inheritance. Glory is not simply what he receives from the Father. Glory is also what he shares with you as a gift from the Father. How many times have you heard somebody say something like, you know, if I ever get rich, Mom, here's what I'm going to do for you. Right? You've probably said that. Kids, right? Uh, My kids, feel free to say that. But though you say it, doesn't mean you can deliver on it. But Jesus actually did. Jesus got rich. He who was impoverished for our sake, who set aside uh, that eternal glory to be clothed in humility, even our sin and our shame, nonetheless, uh, in the resurrection, was granted an everlasting inheritance and treasure. And what Jesus received, Jesus freely shares. He shares the riches of his own glory with his own particular and peculiar people. In this regard, he is a faithful older son and is also a generous older brother. He has received the inheritance, and now he shares it with all his siblings. And what he intends to share with us is so great, Paul is saying here in verse 18, what Jesus intends to share with us is so great, the trials of this present evil age, though real, are nonetheless unworthy to even be compared with with what Jesus intends to share with us. That is his point. That eternal heavenly glory that awaits us is so great, these momentary trials aren't even worth comparing with all that is ours in Christ. But there is more. And this takes us to our second point. It spans several verses from 19 to 23. Paul waxes eloquent and pastoral about those who share in our sufferings. And the the two points of contact are creation and Christ himself. Creation and Christ himself, in a manner of speaking, have shared in our suffering. So let's talk about uh, creation. It's a little bit of strange language at first. Creation is given here a voice, so much so that creation is almost described like a person that not only speaks, but feels, groans, yearns, longs, creation itself. 
Creation has something in common with us. It not only suffers, but at times, or consistently, it longs to be free from the curse of sin. Have you ever thought about it? The world around us, all the stuff that you see, when you go outside in particular and look at nature itself, from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the ocean, it has all been stung by sin. It's all been scarred and marred. And it yearns to be free from the burden and reality of sin, just like you and me. And so Paul grants creation virtually a voice and emotion. Creation longs. It eagerly waits for something that it has not yet received. And what it longs for, verse 19, uh, is the revelation of the sons of God. Maybe to say it differently, what it waits for and yearns for is the revelation of the sons of God. Now, I've been working on this verse for a little while, trying to figure out exactly what Paul is saying here. I'm very intrigued by this language, and, and I think you should be too. Paul seems to be saying that creation is waiting. And, and if your mind works a little bit like mine, well, you wonder, well, what's it waiting for? And the Bible asks this question all over the place in different times in different ways. You can make it very simple. How long? How long must creation wait? Parallel, how long must we wait? Say it differently. What is it that history and creation is waiting for? Well, the answer here is in our verse, it's the revelation of the sons of God. On the one hand, and this is where we've done a good bit of deep diving, on uh, this verse. On the one hand, this could mean or suggest that creation is waiting, history is waiting for the last person to be converted into the kingdom of God. To say it differently, to use adoption language, when the last child has been adopted into God's family, then no longer will history and creation have to wait. The sons of God and daughters of God will be revealed. In a certain sense, it's a quantitative thing. If there are exactly one million, this is just a playful number, if there are exactly one million people yet to be converted, creation will wait no longer when that final one millionth person has been brought home. On the one hand, that may be what the language here implies. It could also mean that creation is waiting for something like the curtain call at the end of a play where all the characters are brought out on stage. And what is displayed before us is not simply the fact that they're all there, but like at the end of the play, they're all there in glory. They're not simply performing their parts, they're being celebrated as those who have finished their parts. It is that climactic, glorious moment where all the lights are on and all applause is given, and everyone is loudly acclaiming that these are the sons of God, these are the daughters of God, purchased by the Son of God, all because of the will of the Father. Creation is waiting for the curtain call. In this sense, it's not so much who will be there, but how. And the answer is in glory. Creation can't wait for that final day of ingathering and celebration. So this is my take, is it's arguably both. Creation is yearning for the last of God's children to be adopted into the family. Creation is yearning for that day of revelation when the world will know, to use the language of our catechism, when all believers shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. These are the people of God. This is the family of God. And it's not simply a matter of quantity. It is the quality, it is the glory 
of heaven. And until that time, creation, we were told in this section, is frustrated. Frustrated. Verse 20, it was subjected to futility. It was sort of passive. It did not uh, volunteer for this, not willingly, but according to the one who subjected, subjected it. Here again, there's a little bit of a wrestling in the language. Is it talking about the plan of God that says this is how it will be? Or is it referring to the sin of Adam, who when he sinned, immediately not only did his life change, his body change, his future in a certain sense changed, but even that of creation itself. Have you ever thought about how scarred creation is by sin itself? That when sin entered the world, it entered the world, not just the hearts of men and women. It trashed the place. And creation here is given a voice saying, I want to be made well and cleansed. I want for all things to be right. Not only did man fall, but creation, beloved, got dirty. It was stained with sin. And you know this to be true. Because creation, on the one hand, is lovely, but creation, at the same time, is scarred and even dangerous. Our relationship to creation changed. Man, uh, on the one hand, appointed in dominion, a posture of authority and rule over all creation, yet at the same time can now be threatened by creation, can be killed by creation. When Adam sinned, it's not just that he died, all things in the world began to die. Fires began to burn. The curse infiltrated, again, not simply man's heart, but even his home, this world, and every room in this world is affected by sin. The world, not just humanity, is full of brokenness. And according to Paul, is here frustrated. And in its frustration, uh, it longs for the curse to finally be reversed. Here's a question for you. What do you expect to happen at the end of the age? Now, you may say, well, that's just a big theological question. You're kind of being a little nerdy there, Pastor Eric. But it it does matter. We do not believe in annihilation. We do not believe that at the end of the age, God's just going to make everything go away and then we'll just kind of float around like ghosts or something like that. If you think that, it's a pretty bad view. It's not in the Bible. What we believe in is a new heavens and a new earth. Bodies. Things. Not only a people, but a place where God will be glorified and enjoyed For all eternity. So to say it differently, what we long for, what Paul is saying here, what creation yearns for, is not the elimination of all things, but the renovation of all things. One final spring cleaning, and then guess what? You're going to love this part. It's going to stay clean. Doesn't that sound like heaven? I expected a lot more amens, but you can email them later. R.C. Sproul has a very interesting suggestion here in this text. He brings up pets. Have you ever wondered, will there be dogs in heaven? Will there be cats? Not in my version. (laughs) Will there be snakes? R.C., I think, goes boldly too far here. He raises the question. Well, I think he he makes this point, and I think this part is uh, pretty defensible. 
If the new heavens and the new earth is not the elimination of things as we know it, but the renovation of things as we know it, we should expect there to be oceans and mountains, trees and grass, water and ice, animals, even dogs, and even cats. Now, does that mean my shadow and Guinness and Bailey will be there? I don't know. R.C. stretches dangerously close to saying yes, but that's probably just because he likes his pets as much as I like mine, and you as well. We're not sure which dogs and cats will be in heaven, but I think we can confidently say dogs and cats will be in heaven. That's part of what this all means. It's not the elimination of all things, but the renovation of all things, and our relationship to all those things will be perfect. Dogs that don't bite, that don't chase, that don't scratch, because death is a thing of the past, and man and all the things of creation are in such perfect harmony that that relationship is defined by exactly that, eternal harmony. And even on top of that, no more pollution, no more contamination, no more poison water, no more sin. Paul not only gives creation a voice, he describes creation like a slave longing to be made free. He uses that exact language. Creation, verse 21, itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation like a slave to sin, alive but not free, longing to be set free. And then he moves to another metaphor. Creation here, again, described like a woman who is pregnant, in labor, yearning for that day when her labor is complete, groaning in the travail of it as she nears that day when she is about to birth a child on the one hand, uh, longing with expectation at the same time, enduring the reality. Why? Because God said, in joy, you will deliver children. Or he said, in pain, you shall deliver children. That's exactly the language that Paul here applies to creation. Creation is like a groaning woman in the midst of delivering a child. All of creation, not just part of it. So again, when you go outside tomorrow, it's daylight again. And on the one hand, you look around and are able to say, all of this is beautiful. Don't forget, all of that beauty is scarred and longing for that which is ever more beautiful. It longs for that which we do not yet see, the consummation of all things in glory. And so Paul's point here again is not just to describe creation, but to be pastoral. Verse 23, like creation, we too are groaning. Like creation, we too are frustrated. Like creation, we too struggle with patience, yearning for those things that are yet to come, at times being satisfied with what is present, and at other times, just eagerly, eagerly, eagerly waiting for those things that are yet to come. In one of the best movies ever made, a fantastic line is dropped. Life is pain, your highness, and anyone who says differently is selling something. But when you think about it, every day, the world tries to sell us the line that there's really nothing wrong. This is just the way it's meant to be, and it always will be. 
And in fact, if you could get just a little more comfortable, a little more at ease, it'll be heaven on earth. But that's a lie. At other times, even pop culture has recognized, not simply in movies, but even in music, a nice song, sort of, from the 80s, late late 80s, there's something wrong with the world today and I don't know what it is. There is a sense in which on the one hand, the world keeps trying to say, everything's fine. There is another sense in which the world has to admit everything's broken. Sin is what's wrong with the world today, and even creation knows it. And this is why Jesus had to come. It was not enough for creation to be able to share in our groaning, in our yearning, in our longing for the release of sin. To simply have a partner in misery may be a little bit helpful, but it won't end your misery. Creation saying, yeah, I'm broken too, might give you a little bit of company, but it doesn't change your brokenness. This is why Jesus had to come. And the poetry of the language is fantastic. Jesus not only had to come, Jesus, when he came, you know what he did? Like creation, like you and me, he groaned. He groaned. And when did he groan? At those punctuated moments where he literally stares into the face of our greatest foe. He groaned in John chapter 11, standing over the tomb of Lazarus as he stared into the face of death. A foe that had taken his friend, Jesus groaned at the cross. When there, he's not simply staring into the face of death, but experiencing, tasting death for us. One of the last things we are told that Jesus did while he was yet in this world as our suffering Savior and servant, he groaned. He groaned at the tomb of Lazarus, and then he groaned his way into the tomb for us. But this is the good part. He is not groaning anymore. His groaning is over. He has triumphed over all the things in this world that make us groan. He has triumphed over all the things in this world that causes creation to groan because he has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over sickness. He has triumphed over Satan. He has triumphed over death. He has triumphed over the tomb. He has triumphed over evil, and he has triumphed over us. Jesus no longer groans. In glory, beloved, there will be no groaning. There will be no yearning. There will be no longing. There will be God himself. We groan as we wait not the destruction or annihilation of our bodies, but their redemption. We groan for the bodily resurrection, not the absence of our bodies. We groan not because we are eager for death, but rather because we long for eternal life. And this is why, even here in this chapter, Jesus, who is the firstborn over all creation, gives his spirit, grants his spirit to us, that the work of the spirit might bear in us the first fruits of the new creation. 
what he has begun in us spiritually, he will complete in us bodily. That's what salvation means. Salvation, beloved, is far, far more than simply being forgiven or even simply going to heaven the moment that we pass from this world. Salvation, globally speaking, must include, does include, the redemption of our bodies just as it includes the redemption of this world. New heavens, new earth, and thankfully, new bodies. Wouldn't it be really awkward if it was just new heavens, new earth, these bodies stayed the same? In glory, we shall have bodies that never sin, never die. In glory, we shall glorify and enjoy God in the new creation that has none of the scarring and marring effects that sin has left behind. And in glory, we shall see God face to face. And that's what shall make heaven glorious. It's the glory of God. And so I need just a few more minutes for my final point. Hope in the midst of suffering. We have to talk about the last two verses. There is a problem here. And to go back to the beginning, the problem is waiting. For who likes to wait? The great irony and challenge for a Christian is that on the one hand, there's a side of us that wants to stretch out this life forever and ever and ever. And yet at the same time, this is the irony, this is uh, the paradox, we are eagerly awaiting something that has not yet come. And so therein lies the rub. On the one hand, trying to stretch this out as though it were going to go on forever, but it's obviously not. And at the same time, eagerly waiting for God to usher in that glorious moment. And waiting is never easy. We are by nature impatient people. I am by nature an impatient person. I hate waiting in traffic. It makes me even dislike people. I hate waiting in line. It tempts me to cut ahead. You have that thought too, even sweet little old ladies. We all hate waiting in general. Why? Because we all have someplace better to be. And it's actually true. Underneath the sinful struggle of waiting and patience, it's actually proper to say, you have someplace better to be. You should be a little impatient. Creation eagerly waits with frustration, longing, and groaning. Why? Because creation has someplace better to be. And it's frustrated until it comes. It's actually true. The thing that makes waiting so hard, even for the Christian, is that we have someplace better to be, and that someplace better, beloved, is not home. Not this earthly home. Or even the beach. Because sin and decay go home with you. And there are plenty of both at the beach. That someplace better for us is heaven. And this is Paul's final point. We are saved into this hope. And I want to just fine-tune or, or just drill down on the language here at the end. When Paul says that we are saved into this hope, he is not saying that we are saved by this hope. There's a difference. We are not saved by hope, but we are saved into hope. And it's a beautiful distinction. Again, our salvation is so much more than just being forgiven. It's being delivered from death to life, from hopelessness to hopefulness. And this hope, Paul says, is based on things that we do not see. Say it differently. It's based on the opposite of what we see. Every day when you open your eyes, what do you see? 
You see a world that is beautiful yet scarred and marred. You see things that are alive and yet they're all dying at the very same time. You see the realities, sometimes even inescapable ones, of sin, of sickness, and even death. Yet we hope for righteousness, heaven, and eternal life. We see sin and shame and long for more righteousness and even glory. And Paul asks a question here at the end. Who hopes for what he sees? Nobody. If you already see it, if you already have it, you're not hoping for it. That's the point. It's actually uh, rather simple. We hope for what we have not yet seen and not yet apprehended. But again, one theologian comments very helpfully that a lot of bad theology and bad decisions have been forged in the furnace of impatience. There are things that we long for, even hope for, but impatience can make us believe the wrong things, and impatience can make us do the wrong things. But a healthy and helpful theology is bound, not only in the Word of God, but the particular promises that God has made to His people. And what is it that God's particularly promising you here in Romans 8? But that when Christ comes, you, beloved, will appear with Him and glory. And so we hope for what God has promised and we wait for it by faith. This is our calling. Our hope is rooted in the character and the promises of God. Our hope is based upon the historical reality of the resurrection of the Son of God. And hope is worked in us day by day, more and more, as part of the work of the Spirit of God. It is literally part of the fruit of the Spirit demonstrated by faith. In patience. Christian hope, beloved, sets us apart from the world. So the final word here, this may seem a little strange for a pastor to say, it's okay to groan. It's okay to groan. Creation groans. The sun in this present evil age groan. But we, like creation, groan with hope. Hope that awaits the revelation of the sons of God. It may be difficult to wait, but our hope will not disappoint. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you for hope that is based not upon the word of man or the fleeting vapors of this present evil age, but the sure word of God the resurrection of the Son of God, and the indwelling ministry of the Spirit of God. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would give us boldness to groan, and yet patience to wait upon you with hope. Like creation, we long for that day when all things will be made right and well. We long not simply for longer life, but eternal life. We long to be beyond sin and shame, and to dwell with you in eternal glory. And until that day comes, O Lord, might we wait upon it with confidence with expectation, with hope, and with patience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.